as we continue our study and the, our statement of faith as a church, we come to the question of God. Who is he? How do we know what we know about him? Will it make a difference in our lives? Will his identity, his person, change how we live? Will we know him only as facts? Or will we know him as the living God? It is so important for us to truly consider the doctrine of God, because really, it's the basis of our life, for he is the sustainer of our life. A few weeks back, we distributed a copy of our church's statement of faith, a little booklet here. Perhaps you've misplaced yours. Mr. Dinsmore is going to come now. And if you have misplaced yours or didn't get one of these, um, just feel free to get his attention, and he'll get you a copy of it. We have previously covered the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the Bible, and now we come to the doctrine of God. It's an interesting consideration, the order that we deal with these in. A question was asked of me from the worksheet regarding the Bible as to the scripture that speaks of God placing his word above his name. Well, God in his name speaks of who he is in his identity and in his character and in his person. God who he is. And for him to say that he places his word above his name, it seems rather odd and strange. Well, one of the main reasons why it's important is because the majority of what is known of God is really known according to how he has revealed himself in the Bible. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, and we see all the handiwork and majesty and glory of God all around us in creation. But ultimately, in understanding those questions of the heart, we needed more than what we might call natural revelation and creation, and we needed special revelation in the Word of God, which is why many statements of faith, such as ours, begin first with the Bible, when you might say, wait a minute, isn't God first and then His Word come next? Well, logically, that would be true. God's Word, thereby He comes first. But really, the majority of what we know about God, at least the part that comes from the longing of our hearts, comes from His Word. And that's the reason why we start with His Word, and now we consider who God is. This is very important because throughout the ages, man has invented to himself gods. Even the atheists have invented to themselves a humanistic God in and of themselves. We as men have invented concepts of God, and I dare say that even many professing Christians who profess to believe the Bible have invented concepts of God that are not accurate. In fact, ultimately, to be very candid with you, every time that when we know to do good and we do it not, the problem is that we have the wrong view of God. We don't really know Him. And I don't mean know Him as in just here in our heads, but truly know Him in a way of relationship as the living, personal God. And so, we consider the Word of God our sole authority for faith and practice. 
as our statement of faith declares, we believe the Bible containing the Old and New Testaments to be verbally inspired of God, inerrant in his original languages, and that it is the sole authority for personal faith and conduct. And so as we consider the God in whom we place our faith, we need to know who he is according to our sole authority, his word. Not what we imagine about him. Not what we pick up from nature alone or from our culture. Or I dare say even from the fact that we are created in his image. Because all of those things could be construed they could be misshapen. They could lead us astray. And so we come to the scriptures and we perceive the world around us and we perceive our culture, we perceive our perspective of who God is according to his word. And so in our church's statement of faith, we come to a definition or a declaration of what we believe about God and the truth is, and considering our statement of faith, and then also in studying the topic, oh, my dear friends, throughout the ages to come, I believe we will still struggle to truly, truly comprehend who God is. To wrap him up into a simple statement is, in fact, impossible. We can't. But in our meager attempts to clarify many things, we have sought to do so. And so here is our statement of faith regarding God. We believe that there is one true God, true and living God, creator of heavens and earth, and that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in divine perfections and exercising distinct but harmonious operations in the great work of redemption. It's a beautiful statement, but as I meditated upon it and thought and sought to consider this statement um, from the perspective of one who was not raised being taught the things of God from a child, or even being a child not yet taught the things of God, there's some interesting concepts up there in that declaration of who God is. We ask that those who join our church as members agree to our church's statement of faith. But how can you agree to our church's statement of faith if you do not have understanding? So it is very important for us as we consider this declaration that we have understanding because we do not want our understanding to be shaky. No, our understanding cannot be shaky. When we read this statement of faith, are we wishy-washy on it? Are we shaky in our understanding of it or in our conviction that what is stated is true? My goal this morning is for us to go through this statement of faith and to be able to shore up your understanding, that your understanding may be firm, and not just in a statement of faith, but that that statement of faith may be confirmed to you upon the authority of the Word of God. It doesn't really matter what I say or what the church says in its statement of faith. The real thing that matters is what does God say? And 
do I believe what God has said? We have, in a meager way, sought to summarize the doctrine of God here in just one short little paragraph. It's very difficult to do. But I think it has done a good job in summarizing details of God, not only just facts of who God is, but declaration, declarations of who he is as a person in that we need to have a relationship with him. And so, could you read with me this statement of faith? God, we believe that there is one true and living God, creator of heaven and earth, and that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in divine perfections and exercising distinct but harmonious operations in the great work of redemption. A lot there. Let's look at the first statement. We believe that there is one true God. I struggle with whether or not to go into false doctrine, lest it confuse you. But it's very important to recognize that God is the only true God. All other gods, which as Christians, when in writing, we distinguish them by a lowercase g, all others besides the one true God who identified him as the Yahweh, the I am, the self-existent one, all others are false. All others are false and are invented by man. For the one true God, he is a living God. But please don't take my word for it. Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is a book that was written to the Jewish people in what we refer to as the Old Testament times. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, here you see listed in our statement of faith is the primary text of this. In verse 4, we find this declaration. And it is a declaration of God himself. And he is calling out for the world, particularly in this case Israel, to hear. This is the declaration. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one I am. He is one Yahweh. He is one Lord. He is the only one. You know, sometimes people say that theology is sterile and does not impact our personal lives. Well, right in this declaration, declaring for all to hear this fact, it continues on beyond just fact. It continues with a command. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Here is the one Lord, the one God. Love him. This is not simply something that was written or declared by Moses. If we were to turn over to Mark chapter 12 and verses 29 to 31, 
we find Jesus challenged by unbelievers who thought they were spiritual, men who had invented a God to themselves, to put it candidly, and called him Jehovah, asked Jesus a question, and Jesus responded actually by quoting Deuteronomy. And in Mark chapter 12 and verse 29, it says that Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind and with all of thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. The truth of the matter is that all of our life and conduct, if we obey these two commandments, recognizing the central and primary fact that there is a God, that there is only one God, and that he is the true and living God, and when we love him and love all those made in his image, all the commandments are summed up in that. That is the guidance. You remove God from the equation of love thy neighbor and your reasons fall apart rapidly. For the very reason we are to love our neighbor is because we ought to love God. The very reason why we love our neighbor is because our neighbor is created in the image of God. Love God. There is one true God and he is a living God. The next phrase of our statement of faith describes our one true God as the creator of heavens and earth. I hope that you know that the very first book of the Bible and the very first statement of the Bible is this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, which means that in the beginning, there was already God, for God is eternal, and he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is a significant fact. In fact, this is a one to really get excited about because as we consider natural revelation in that we see the heavens declare the glory of God and we see God's glory in different parts of nature. We spoke this morning of the fact that God's the one who invented mathematics, which is one reason why we can be excited about mathematics even when our brains are about to explode. God is, his glory is declared in all things. He is the creator. In fact, this statement here describing him as the creator is presented by God himself as his right to claiming the title of God. You want to be a God? Here's the deal. You have to create everything from nothing. Oh, and you have to have existed forever. Well, as we quickly, quickly, quickly discover that's only possible for one, the one true God. Listen to how he declared that. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. In all of your Bibles, there are all kinds of key passages that we can remember, and Jeremiah 10 is one of those. It's an intriguing chapter because apart from actually a lot of what we're going to learn in Daniel, a lot of Daniel is written, was originally written in Aramaic, um, and most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for a large portion of Daniel, which is interesting because Daniel is dealing with the whole world 
uh, the secular world, especially dealing with Babylon. And here in Jeremiah, these verses here in chapter 10, all of a sudden, Jeremiah abruptly stops speaking or writing in Hebrew and begins to write in Aramaic. Now, his reason why is not explained, but it's been speculated, and I think it's a good speculation, is that Aramaic was the lingua franca, meaning that that was the common language of the known world. Only Jewish people, for the most part, spoke Hebrew. Greek then began to develop. But of all the different nations and the different languages that were there, Aramaic was the common language between them, just really as the way that English is in modern times. French was in previous generations, so Aramaic was that. Well, why would God choose to inspire Jeremiah to switch languages in the middle of his letters? Because the message of Jeremiah 10 is for the entire world. It is a declaration of who God is. And it is God wanting to make sure that the whole world knows this fact. Let's see what's so exciting that the whole world needs to know it. Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord, that is Jehovah, that is the I am, that is Yahweh. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. For he hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom. He hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rains and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures." Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. And it continues on to describe false gods and idols made by man. But we see here, did you catch it? There, in, in verse 11 and 12, the qualification for being God is that you have to have created the heavens and the earth. You've had to create everything out of nothing. That's what it is for you to be. As look in verse 10, you can see that our statement of faith is based directly upon Jeremiah 10.10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God. It's important for us to have understanding. What does it mean that he is the living God? Well, the obvious and first answer is, is that God is alive. He's the true God. He is real. And as we see described here in this passage, he is personal. When we declare him to be the true and living God, we are affirming the fact that God is real, alive, and personal. 
This is significant and important. And I hope to you, you say, obviously, of course. I hope that's your background. But this is important to declare because remember I spoke of the fact that man has throughout the ages invented to themselves gods. So it's important for us to recognize that he is real, that he is alive, and that he is personal. We have to recognize that he is not some imagination. He is not some force. He is not some concept. He is not an imagination made up by man because he is real. He is the true living God. He is real. He's also not a force. We think of force as energy. We think of even, in fact, it's interesting here, as you see in Jeremiah, it makes it crystal clear that he's not a force. We think of things like hurricanes and hydraulic power and all of these things as forces. God is not a force. In fact, he reigns supreme and sovereign over all forces. He is God. There is a concept that he is just this force, this energy. No, no, he's not just a force. He's not just energy. He is alive, like you and I are alive, um, but actually more so because we aren't alive without his life. He is the giver and the sustainer of life. He is not just a force or an energy. He is truly alive and personal. Personal is significant, and I distinguish that he is not a concept. Unfortunately, here is an area in which we may fall prey. In our theology, which is the study of God, we may box God into a concept. What's a concept? A concept is a thought or a system of knowledge or information. That is not what God is. He is not just a concept. He's not something that just is documented in textbooks. Our Bible is not describing our God as just, just uh, something that we study. No, no, no. He is a person. He is a person. Like you and I are people which is really important because that means that we can have a relationship with them. I don't know what your relationship with is on certain concepts of mathematics. Mine isn't too good. I don't know what yours is, but he's not a concept like that. No, no, he is an actual person. And it's really important for us to understand that when we see him as the one true living God, that we know that he is real, not an imagination. We know that he is alive, not a force. And we know that he is personal and not some concept. So we believe that there is one true and living God, creator of heavens and earth. We spoke a little already on him being the creator. Again, to recap, this is significant. This is the single primary, you might say in Jeremiah, described qualification for being God in that he is the creator of everything out of nothing. And as Exodus and Genesis reveal to us, it was in six literal days. 
This is one reason why you might wonder, what's the big deal about the evolution-creation debate? The big deal is, is that it undermines the very identity of God. God is declared as the creator, and when you can undermine him as the creator, or even undermine how he said he created, you undermine the entire reality of God. That's the reason why the debate is so passionate, because if you can undermine him as the God who created everything, a thing that only God can do, then all of what we hold dear comes into question, comes into question. If God is not who he said as creator, and by the way, he affirms that from the very, very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end, he declares himself as the creator. And if somehow that is false and wrong, which God forbid that the thought even comes into our minds, then it undermines everything down to our state before him, our sinful condition, and our need for a savior, and all the history and the facts of his redeeming work. This is why it is so important. We believe that there is one true and living God, creator of heavens and Our statement of faith continues to describe that our God is one, as has been already declared, but that he is also in the Godhead three persons. This is sometimes known as the doctrine of the Trinity. I prefer the phrase of the triunity. The tri speaking of three, unity speaking of one. For God is one in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here we see it described that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in divine perfections. Again, we need to have understanding. What do some of these words mean, and how do we understand it? Let us look first at the word Godhead. Godhead. This word speaks of the fact that God is God. Pretty obvious, right? It actually comes in English from a root word which meant Godhood, which means that who is God. So when we speak of the Godhead, it is an identifier that we're speaking of God. And here it's described in our statement as the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons. So there is one God, we might say the Godhead, and all three persons of the Godhead possess the divine attributes unique to God. Godhead, the state of being God. And in the biblical concept which isn't just a concept. Keep that in mind. The biblical reality of who God is is that he is three persons in one, and that all three of these persons 
are equal in divine perfections. In this way, we might say they are all three possessing the divine attributes unique to God. Well, in order for God to be God, there's a few things that have to be real about him. There are attributes. Attributes are a way that we describe things of who God is and what God is like. Some of his attributes, we as human beings created in his image, can share. Some of them are unique to God. Here's an illustration. Knowledge. Do we have knowledge? Do we pursue knowledge? Do we grow in knowledge? Yes, we do. We have that because we are created in the image of God. But what makes us different from God is that in our knowledge, we are finite. And in his knowledge, he is infinite. Another word we use in theology is that he has the attribute of omniscience, meaning that he knows everything. He knows everything. That's why, again, this morning I encourage the children, when you're having trouble with math, talk to the guy who invented it. He knows everything, everything. In fact, he knows everything in a way that we can't even comprehend because he actually knows events of the future before they happen. He knows everything. This is an attribute. This is an aspect of who God is. It is an attribute of who he is. And when we use the word divine, the word divine is kind of related to the word godhood or godhead in the fact that it is what is God. There are certain attributes like omniscience, knowing everything that is only true of God. It is a divine attribute. We might have attributes of knowledge, but we do not have attributes of all knowledge, of omniscience. That is an attribute belonging only to God. And it's important for us to recognize that in the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then all three of these persons possess the divine attributes unique, that means only God has them, unique to God. So the Godhead is one concept, again, not concept, reality of who our God is. He is one God, and in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We find all three of these persons, if you look there at our statement of faith, appearing in the same time in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, we find Jesus coming down to John the Baptist, which time John the Baptist declared him as, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. you remember that? Well, in the midst of this situation and this time, there is a, a situation in which John baptizes Jesus. I'd like to, I'd like to read this situation to you, for it speaks of this baptism, and it shows to us all three persons of the Godhead present and interacting at the same time. It says in verse 13, Matthew 3, 13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? This is a recognition that Jesus is God himself. And here John is sitting back saying, whoa, who am I to baptize you? And Jesus answering, didn't disagree with him. Jesus answering said unto him, 
Suffer it, that means allow it, under, even if you protest, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. Jesus is the one who fulfilled all righteousness. And though he was not like others needing to be baptized, here John's baptism was dealing with the repentance of sins. Jesus had no sins, he didn't need it. But in this case here, it was what becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This is what was the right thing to do at that time was to do. And so then John, he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here we see an historical event where all three persons of the Godhead, the one true God, are there together seen as individual persons. The voice from the Father, God the Father, declaring, this is my beloved Son. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, having come up out of the water, is declared to be his Son. And in the midst of this, the Spirit of God, depicted like as a dove, descending upon him. Here we see all three persons together in this day, declaring not only Jesus to be the eternal Son of God, but declaring the fact of the triunity of God. For God is said to be one Lord from the beginning to the end. But then throughout Scripture, in Old Testament, there were little glimpses of it. In the New Testament, crystal clear declarations that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. The deity, which is the fact that one is God, the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, and the deity of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, is an important study. I wanted to go into it this morning, but it would be one of those, one of those that um, we don't have time to cover. But I encourage you, at the end here, I'd like to distribute to you a worksheet for your families in which the deity of Christ is established by having you go from Scripture to Scripture. And for you, I hope, to take, please, I beg you too, to use your Bibles and use the worksheet as a guide to establish from God's Word that Jesus indeed truly is God and that the Holy Spirit also is indeed truly God. This plays into why we in our declaration of, of faith, our statement of faith, we speak of here where it says that the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in divine perfections. Divine perfections. This means that the ultimate and unique glory and attributes belonging to God alone, are equal in all three persons of the Godhead. All three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have all of the unique glory that belongs only to God, and they have all of the unique attributes belonging only to God, and they are perfect in all of them. Jesus is as much God as God the Father is. The Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus is God. 
There's a relationship between them. They have different functions and distinctions, but all of them are perfect and equal in their divine attributes. They are equal in divine perfections. So we believe that there is one true and living God, creator of heavens and earth, and that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in divine perfections. And exercising distinct but harmonious operations in the great work of redemption. What is redemption? Well, this is a vitally important part of the Godhead to each one of us. You see, each one of us are descendants from Adam. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God in the Garden of Eden. They were created in a state of perfection without sin. I hope you know the history, and we're going to learn about it as we continue in our statement of faith. They both rebelled against God and disobeyed him and put upon all creation and upon the entire Adamic race, all of us, the curse of sin. Sin passed upon all men, and not just because it was from Adam, but also because that all have sinned. In a way, we have all been enslaved by sin. We have been taken captive by sin. Jesus, in fact, said that whosoever committed sin is the servant, the slave of sin. And we need to be bought out of slavery. We need to be bought out of our sin. That's what redemption is. To be redeemed means to be bought back. We are God's most cherished creation, but we have been taken hostage by our sin, and we and as sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We need to be redeemed. And this declaration is declaring that the Godhead, which is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they together in the redemption process, in the effort, in the, in the work for our redemption, all of them were involved. All of them were involved. Here again is an exciting and true realization of the personal important aspect of our God. Again, our God is not just some concept. He's not even some just deist who in one time in the past created everything, created man, and just said, there you go, ruin it yourselves, I'm out of here. No, 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 no. He is personal and he is engaged and all three persons of the Godhead are engaged for us to be rescued, for us to be bought back, for us to be redeemed from our sin and the bondage that our sin brings. And we find these three persons of the Godhead all intimately involved in that great work of redemption. We find them working distinct but harmonious. What do we mean by that? The best way for me to say what we mean by that is to show you. We have God the Father. God the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God the Father sent the eternal Son, the sending of the Redeemer, the sending of the Savior is the distinct work operation of God the Father in our great redemption. Jesus, the Son, 
through his death, burial, and resurrection, redeems me. Jesus is the one who died, was buried, and rose again to pay for my redemption. God the Father sent the Son to be my Redeemer. Jesus the Son, through his death, burial, and resurrection, redeems me. And the Holy Spirit, he seals my redemption. He's the one who guarantees my redemption. And he doesn't just do it with wax, like we seal things, or with ink, or with glue. He seals our redemption with his very own presence. He himself takes up a boat inside of us, which is why later in another passage in the New Testament, it declares that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. When the Holy Spirit seals us, he moves in and he lives within us. And it says it's with all the fullness of God. Another place it speaks of actually the Godhead, which again speaks and affirms the triunity of God. For when the Holy Spirit moves in, there is one God in three persons. The fullness is all there. Declaring the deity of the Holy Spirit as well as the triunity of God. So in this, as we declare, as we declare the triunity of God, the unity of the Godhead in three persons, and we declare their work distinct but harmonious in the operations that would needed to happen for us to be redeemed in the great work of redemption. God the Father sent the Son to be my Redeemer. Jesus the Son, through his death, burial, and resurrection, redeems me, and the Holy Spirit seals my redemption. I have very specifically chosen the personal pronoun in these declarations. Why? Because we believe. This is a statement of faith of those who believe. You know, you may believe there's a God or may believe in a God. But do you truly believe that he is the one true living God? Is he your life? Is he your redeemer? Can you declare that the Father sent the Son to be my redeemer? Can you declare this morning that Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, redeemed me? Can you this morning declare that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Can you say that the Holy Spirit has sealed my redemption? Do you see how our doctrine of God is so real? It's not some concept of God or some theoretical position in theology for theologians to debate or to study. No, no, no. The reality of the true and living God is the very core of our life, or it should be. It's the very core of our life. It's by which we have redemption, salvation. It's by which only we have everlasting life.
And so will you declare with me? Will you read together in unison with me our statement of faith? And I pray that it not just be words, but truly from your heart. God, we believe that there is one true and living God, creator of heavens and earth, and that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in divine perfections and exercising distinct but harmonious operations in the great work of redemption. We believe. Do you believe? Gracious God, we bow before you, our creator. Lord Jesus, we worship you, our savior and redeemer. Dear Holy Spirit, we give thanks to you, our comforter, our seal. May we go forth in this day abiding in you and you and all your fullness abiding in us. May we live our lives in such a way that you are lifted up and glorified for you alone are worthy. You are great. You are awesome, almighty and all-powerful. You are omniscient and all-knowing. You are good and you are just. And we could go on and on and on describing who you are. I pray, dear God, that would we not just describe you or to know you, to put you to a point of a concept, but that we would know you as the living God. You who have a personal interest in me. You who are my friend. You who right now hear my prayer. May this be true every moment in whatever I face that I may come to you in prayer, knowing that you are the true and living God. We worship you. May we worship you in our words and our thoughts and our actions every moment and every day that you might glorify yourself through us, your image bearers. Lord Jesus, I pray for those here this morning who do not know you as my Redeemer. May they know today that you died, were buried, and rose again for them. For them personally, specifically. Dear Spirit of God, move in their hearts, convicting them of the truth and the reality of what Jesus has done, that they might believe, trusting in the Lord Jesus, that you, our Father in heaven, might be glorified as they receive life everlasting. May they trust and hope in you this day. And for us who have been redeemed, may we not lose the focus of the glory of our relationship, but always, day by day, walk in you. By faith, as just we have received you by faith, walk by faith. 
And again, may you be glorified, dear Father, as we abide in you and your word abides in us. We give ourselves to you now and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Joel's going to come and lead us in a hymn. I encourage you this morning to praise the one true and living God. And if you have not known him and do not know him, I should say, as your Savior, Redeemer, don't delay. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Believe him this day.